crew start waking, stretching, yawning. Just another outback morning. Nah, this one's special. It's Macca on a Sunday morning. Ian, it's John speaking from Monal. We're on holidays in the Eyre Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And yesterday I saw the giant cuttlefish for the first time. They're just starting to turn up at Wyala, and it was fabulous to see something blue through to green. Some of the males are up around half a metre, so most Australians are familiar with seeing the small cuttlefish bones on the beach. On the beach, well, yeah. these are the giant, yeah, these are the giant cuttlefish that come to Wyala every year to mate. I think the guide said yesterday there was. 10 males for every female so they have to compete and the way they do it is to show off their colours and the fish themselves or squid I suppose only lives for a bit over a year so they turn up and mate and then I think they said through winter till about August they could get up to 100, 200,000 uh, cuttlefish arriving at Wyala. We toured around the Air Peninsula Ian and it was just wonderful, a, a lovely piece of Australia. At the moment I'm sitting beside the Salt Lake at uh, Port Augusta looking at the Flinders Ranges. It's 18 degrees, no wind, it's a beautiful day. He picks me up when I feel down. Wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. There's truckies ringing, quilters calling, there's winter chills and snow starts falling, and everybody's talking about the weather. Jeez, cold, mate. In Jamestown, Buckin', Old Talbingo, Lura, Portsea, Bernie, Dingo, they're warming up with Macca on a Sunday morning. I wait all week for Macca on a Sunday morning. I love you, Drew. Look, it's time to head north, isn't it? We're just talking to Mark who's in Cooktown fishing at a place called Eddie's Camp, or near Cooktown. Um, and you're probably heading north. Everybody heads... Well, they say they head north just about the time the mullet make their run, and uh, I've seen that. I saw that at Byron Bay once, um, and also on the coast somewhere. I forget where it was. But, um, yeah, it's time to head north. It's cold, and is it going to be the winter of our discontent? I don't know. hope not. Hope not. You just got to keep warm, uh, keep knitting those little squares. The ladies who do the be- the beanie things on in uh, Alice Springs in uh, next month, I think. Kel, I just had a call from um, P P Wee, was it P Wee? And he's just about to take off uh, on his ultralight, go for a flight on the Gold Coast. But he said, "Back, you know they're using cone toads now in the crab pots." The- <laughs> I couldn't believe that. You really? Maybe. Well, that's what he said. That's what he said. You hear it. You hear it here first. They're using cane toads in the crab pots, in up here in Queensland. He said that's what we're doing. It's uh, it's all interesting. Macca on the Indian Pacific recently says Lynn, Lynette Brown. I recently met Mick Pawley, and he spoke of you. Now, Mike Pawley was the bloke who's walked across Australia, what, a couple of times? And he, had, he was a bit overweight. He had problems with his knees and things like that. But he walked across Australia uh, twice, didn't he, Kel? I think twice he did. But now he's obviously he's on the Indian Pacific now. He's taking the train. He's taking the train. Says Lynette Brown. Thanks, Lynette. Lynette says, I assisted with filling your teeth years ago with Dentist Wally Pie. <laughs> the things you hear here, Kel. Uh, Mackie, you're asking about dragonflies and the nymph stage, and that's what they're called. They're called mud eyes or nymphs. 
the dragonflies, and they're very toxic to tadpoles. Our correspondent in Brisbane told us that. She covers her fish pond with uh, netting to stop dragonflies getting in there because they hatch their eggs and they turn into mud eyes, the nymphs, and they eat the tadpoles big time. So, and they're beautiful, aren't they, the dragonflies? Paul McCartney wrote that lovely song, Dragonfly, fly by my window. Remember that one? You and I have a way to go. Uh, I know you love eating blue swimmer crabs, says Graham West. Well, not really, but I remember the time we, a bloke gave us somewhere in South Australia, travelling around, and there were blokes with um, buckets of blue swimmer crabs. Um. Anyway, Graham says, you were asking when is the blue swimmer crab season? Because we were at Lucky Bay, weren't we, Kel? I think, yes, in uh, South Australia. The general guide for here in South Australia is all the months with an R in it. Enjoy your great show, says Graham. That's like you've got to eat um, oysters. Well, you used to say that, but it's not the same now. Only eat oysters with a month uh, with an R in it. From Regine, Regine, Regine. Anderson, she says, um, we have a radio station on Christmas Island in the Australian Indian Ocean Territory, 6RCI, 6RCI, Christmas Island, community radio station. It would be fantastic if you could visit this magic jewel in our Australian Mother Nature's crown and maybe broadcast from here. Regine, I'd love to. She says, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. Uh, why would you? I also have a website and we'd be so happy to see you. It's Regine Anderson. There you go. Thank you, Regine. Um, it's the time in Christmas Island is two hours behind. I think it's two or three hours. It's two hours behind Western Australia, an hour behind. I think so. It's three, but in daylight saving it'd be four. Uh, Macca, your T-shirt is great, and but I think it's also great that it's Australian made, says Roger Stewart. And Roger, it's really great that it's raising money for three, at the moment, three lovely communities that have been ravaged by floods and uh, terrible things. And what channel do I put the radio on to listen to the ABC? I assume that's Channel TV, Channel Kel. And that's um, 25. Is that right, John? 25? Hmm. Now, our email... I tell you, when I flew down to um, Tassie the other day and I haven't flown for a long time, probably five years. The last time I flew was down to Tassie. We just don't fly anymore but I'm going to try and do a lot more travelling this year and when you travel to places like Perth and back and long distances to Cairns and all sorts of things into Tassie, you really need to fly unless you've got a whole lot of time which nobody has these days if you're if you're working. So, but on the plane, I think it was Mark Lyons and Sean Ross were the pilots, and I always like to hear the names of the pilots and look out the window if I get to sit near the window. But you can never, you can never hear what they're talking about, and I love to hear what they're talking about because usually they've got good things to say, and they say, "Oh, down there, there's so and so, and there's," because you don't when you're looking down, unless you <clears throat> do a lot of flying and you get to know it. Um, I used to do a lot of flying, but not now. But um, but it's nice to be on the plane and hear them. Yeah, hear what they talk. But you can't hear it. You can't. You can't. Hear it. it was a it was a Qantas Link 
flight. I think it was a 717. Is that right? It goes to Hobart, Kel? I think it was a 717. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. Jason here, mate. How are you? Good, Jace. What's happening? Oh, mate, just out here in the beautiful outback Cloncurry. Um, <laughs> enjoying the nice, cool morning. Yeah, beautiful spot. You, you know, when I was a younger fella, I went out uh, looking for some gold prospectors uh, out of Cron- outside Cloncurry. I had a look, I don't know how, 20, 20 30 k's out, and there were some people prospecting. And they found this gold like it's thread gold. You know, it's like little threads in the... It's yep. not little nuggets or whatever. It's just little threads they found. That's what I remember of Cloncurry. There's a lot of things I remember at Cloncurry, but this gold, they showed me this, and it's like a little tiny necklace, and it's just in the ground there. So go figure. Yeah. What are you up to, yeah, Joe? unreal. Mate, um, last night, Mako, there was six minutes to go in the Dolphins game. I was between uh, Richmond and Julia Creek, and this thing just fell out of the sky. Really? Yeah, yeah. I thought. Well, I didn't know what I thought at the start of it was a falling star, and then I see a lot of other people commented, uh, meteor showers and whatever else. But made it, uh, made me stop and look. Anyway, um, the, everything just went green, just a big green bright light. Really? Yeah. Wonder what yeah, it was. Some, don't know, don't know, Macca. But yeah, I kept driving anyway. I didn't sort of stop to hang around too long, but. But uh, yeah, you could even see it uh, when it's come into the in the atmosphere and have the big long flame at the back, and then and then everything just went bright green. And so it wasn't a shower, a meteor shower, or the the southern the southern lights or the northern lights. You know, it wasn't anything like that. Um, you see that? No. You see those down south? No. So you reckon some like a meteor or something, or a falling star? Yeah, well, I, we call a falling falling star or something. Yeah, yeah. I see a lot of people uh, up in Croydon. They put on Facebook. They seen the big light, and mm. Normanton, they seen the the light as well, the green light. Like it was un- unbelievable. Well, there you Never go. Never seen anything so close or anything like that before in my life. Now, what were you doing last night driving? Oh, mate, I'm driving a road trainer heading to Mount Isa to unload uh, unload this morning. Mm. Yeah. So you're always on the road at night, and you were driving at the time. Yeah. Yeah, mate. Yeah. And the dro- <laughs> the poor old dolphins. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were unlucky, weren't they? They're always unlucky. They come. They're good. They're a good side. Those dolphins, I reckon. Mate, Wayne's done a good job there. He's done a real good job putting those fellas together. Yeah. Well, they. Yeah, they were. They were behind at half time, weren't they? And they. They come home all right, but just just not enough. But anyway, there you go. So, yeah. Jace, uh, how's things on the road, mate? Ah, pretty good, mate. Eh? Pretty good. Just poke along, mate. Do your job, eh? I wish I'd have seen that. Uh, well, what, we'll we'll call it a meteor. Yeah, we will, I suppose, or yeah. a falling star. And what, was it yeah. really? Was it really bright? Yeah, yeah, it was really bright, and it it looked really big as well. There you go. I, you know, you kept looking in the mirror because, as you know, there's a good body of feet out here at the moment, and you think, Jesus, something that hot and coming in that fast, you think there's got to be a bushfire somewhere. Well, there you go. Well, nice to talk to you, Jase. Keep in touch. Where where you go to? Uh, where are you going to now? Uh, going up to Mount Isa, mate, unload, and then go down to Brisbane, yeah. So that's your trip usually? Yeah, yep, yeah, that's my trip, mate. 
right. Every well, week. Good on you, Jace. Nice to talk to you, mate. Thanks, Macca. Uh, I'd just like to say hello to all the other road train drivers out there. Uh, keep it safe and keep up the good work. <laughs> good on you, mate. See you, Jace. Thanks, mate. Hello, Macca. Yep. David. Hi, David. And you, Kai. Hi, David. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm... Uh... I'm painting a picture at the moment, Macca. Yeah. It's, um, I've been around the sun 75 times and I've been painting all my life every day and I think i am finally kicked the goal. Uh, Dave, uh, your, um, your little piece about, uh, you rang last week, didn't you, about Plato and... Eurip- oh, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. I did. And Euripides. Euri- he was the, t- the Greek tailor, wasn't he? Euripides, Eumendides, he, he, yeah. He was, <laughs> he was. Um, I suppose um, the attitude of the Greeks towards art has permeated my mind over the years. Also, um, Bob Dylan and the song the band covered, um, When I Paint My Masterpiece. It's been an earworm every day. And are you painting your masterpiece, Dave, or have you? Or? Well, I hope so. I'm the first one I've ever been proud of, Macca. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, it was inspired by the Tweed River after it had been through my house. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, hopefully it follows all those things that the muse, getting back to ancient Greece. I'm, I, I think if you're going to be fair dinkum in this, in this job, you've got to be attacked by a muse. Well, in anything too, I think anything in, in in art or life, I suppose you have a you have a a bright light that you follow. Is that right? Something like that. Um, I think so. I think so. Perhaps some some people have a special vocation. I don't know. Um, let's go back. If I were just to follow on from the Greeks, the. the the top dog Zeus, the boss god, he had nine daughters and they were they were the muses and they'd latch on to an artist. They were the only goddesses who could see into the future and if they saw some potential in someone, then you it became like being bitten by a mozzie. If you get up in the morning and you've got to pick up your brush, like you'd have to scratch yourself. I see. Um, and you've been painting a long time, David? I decided to be an artist when Miss Baxter said to me in uh, third class, go and draw Santa on the blackboard, and I got an early mark. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) So mileage as well as happiness in painting pictures. Uh, But but see, you could obviously draw. I mean, some people... Yeah, I think that's a prerogative. It's like you can't be an opera singer if you're tone deaf. Exactly. Yeah, um, but then this is an old-school attitude because today art is something that is available to everybody. You can go and buy paint at the reject shop. Yep. When I was a kid, there were only three art shops in Sydney. And and, you, and you've you've taught painting, David, or...? Yeah, off and on. My, my um, best memory as a teacher was I was on a Greek island, once again back in Greece, and I was teaching art to French tourists in French. <laughs> so there's a, there's a Skinner for the books, an Australian um, on a Greek island teaching art in French. Yeah. <laughs> so, and see, I've always admired people who can, some people can just draw, you know, at school there was kids like you, I suppose, and they were asked to draw things and they draw something in a, 
It was wonderful, and I couldn't draw for yeah. nuts. I couldn't and draw for nuts. The, and what's a puzzle for me is I can't understand why people can't draw because mm. it's it's a reflex for me. Uh, it's a, the eye sees it, and the hand does it. Hopefully, between the two, it goes through the Xbox. You know that factor inside. Um, yeah. that there's more than just intelligence. Yeah, well, it's, it's like it's like being able to run fast. You know, you can either run fast. I'm not talking about running. Everyone can run. Yeah. But some people can run like the wind. You know, like Betty Cuthbert or whatever they can. Well, do. well, but, and maybe there's a muse for for athletes. Sure. Not in the history, though. It was for anybody interested in the arts or the sciences. Yeah. And um, which included poetry, music, painting, dance, astronomy, etc. And people who got touched by the muse had no option. And it's called in. It's called a vocation. Oh, that's being called like to the priesthood, I suppose. And there's no resigning or retirement. There's no 65, I quit painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our uh, rowing correspondent sent me an email uh, the other day about you. He says, I've really enjoyed the references to Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. They were great guys. Added to Mysticles who suggested taking on the Persians while rowing wooden boats. And you've got four blokes without whom we might not have a modern democracy as we know it. We should throw in the, into that group... Aspasia, who coached Socrates and Pericles in oration. Without her coaching, we might not know them at all. Maybe no one would have listened. <laughs> there you go. And can I finish by saying years ago, I remember you lamenting the idea that you never taken up rowing as in an Olympic sport. Yep. And you were admiring the fitness of rowers. And as I was listening, I just got out of the sculling boat early morning training. Yeah. So you're a rower as well, David? Is oh, there, back in the day, is back there, in the day, mate. Now I'm on a walking stick. Is there no end to your talents, Dave? Is there no? Well, end to only that getting to the shop on the walking stick is no different to getting to the finish line in a race. And and of course, a lot of the Greeks who live in Australia uh, now are going back to Greece. They go back in the summer, don't they? they? I've got friends who are going back for four months, for God's sake. Oh, it's beautiful. And I've got to go, mate. This is radio time. But one thing I will say, if there's one thing you've got to say about Greece, is the tomatoes are as red as the soil and taste like nothing you'll ever eat here. Good on you, Dave. Great to talk hey. to you, mate. See you, mate. See you, mate. Bye. Mark's in... Uh, where are you, Mark? Tell us. Morning, Ann. We're at a place called uh, Eddie's Camp, north of Cooktown. Eddie's Camp. What are you doing there, Mark? We're up here fishing, uh, Ian. We come up, a couple of my mates and I, we come up every year. Not to here, but somewhere up north fishing. And this year it's uh, Eddie's Camp near Hope Bush. All right. Eddie's Camp. You're a, you're a fishing tragic, obviously. Oh, absolute tragic, but not as bad as my friend Hugh. He's even worse. Yep. Well, tell us something about your Eddie's camp and your fishing. What have you caught well, so far? Eddie's camp was opened up about 20 years ago, Ian, by an Aboriginal uh, who was on the land council up here at Hope Bale Mission. Yeah. And he opened up a big area here right on the beach where you could camp. Anyone can camp here. You're all welcome to come. And you can go fishing. We haven't had much luck, though, Ian, because of the weather. Uh-huh. What's the weather? Very windy. Oh. Southeasters. Uh-huh. But um, uh, beautiful place, Magga. 
Well, it sounds lovely. And what sort of fish are you after? Barramundi or something, are you? We're after barramundi, mangrove jack, um, mud crabs. And this is something you do all the time, Mark? You go all over the place fishing? Is, yeah, that, well, is, is that your muse, as we were talking about earlier this morning? Once a year, Ian, we have a trip, usually up north, to the, sometimes up to uh, the Northern Territory, but usually up here. We went to Normanton last year. And it's just a, a little bonding session, Mark, really, is it? Oh, it is. Well, well it's, a, it's a bonding, fishing, relaxing session, Ian. You should come with us one day. <laughs> I'm not much of a fisher, mate. I never catch much, usually. Well, we're, not, we're not much of fishers, fishermen either, mate. We like to think we are, but we're not. Yeah, it's good fun uh, just going through the routine, isn't it? It's, like, as, it's a bit like making um, the tea ceremony. It's as much about the ceremony of doing the making the tea as it is drinking it. And I, sp- I think fishing's probably the same thing, going through the, the motions and doing all the things you've got to do and and all that. And it's it's all about that, really, isn't it? Too right, Ian. Like, it took us about an hour and a half to get the boat out of the water and on the back on the trailer yesterday, <laughs> up, to, up to our knees in mud. You need to have something to do in life, Mark, don't you? You can't just, yeah. Otherwise, it's just, yeah, you've got to yeah, attack something. And it's like when we were on the Variety Bash and people had break an axle. So that was the whole highlight of their tour. You know, then they'd go and get the car into a town where they could get a, a jack or a hoist and up she'd go and they'd be working all night. And Dudley, yeah, it's just, it's all part of the process, isn't it? It's not well, the, look at the- it is, it is, Ian. It's wonderful. We we bought a buggy up as well, and we we're driving up the beach the other day. Came across a couple of Aboriginal fellas in there with their traditional spears, getting uh, mud crabs out of the water. Wow! It's in the traditional way, not with crab pots, but with spears. Gee, oh well, and I suppose they they know how to do it too. They do. They do. All very friendly up here too, Ian. Uh, and that's not we need a lot of that in these days, don't we? It's a it's a bit of a I don't know, the world's a bit crazy at the moment, so the more friendliness and uh you ought to think about that all the time as we go through. People seem to be fighting and fussing about nothing much at all they, really. They they do, Ian. Mm. I Ivan, the bloke that runs the place now, Eddie passed away a year or so ago. Ivan his son runs it now with his grandson, Gregory. Mm. And they're very friendly, uh, Ian. They're great hosts. I wish we were. Give me a, a look at what you, where you are now. What, where are you? Are you outside your caravan, or what are you doing? Where do you? We're, yeah, we're sitting. Uh, we're on a big grassed area. It's uh, blowing about fifteen to twenty knots. I would say from the south. We're looking out over the water. It's pretty calm out the front of us, but that's only because if you go out another couple of kilometres, it'll be rough as we're tucked in behind a little headland here. Is it Cape Bedford, Hugh? Yeah, yeah we're out, we're in behind Cape Bedford, Ian. Yeah. And well, there's, a, there's a couple of other campers here, mate. No one, well, they're about 200 yards away from us. And are, and, and are, they, yeah, called, are they called the South East Trades? Is that what you experience? Because the yeah, further... That's, yeah. That's exactly it, Ian. Apparently, it, it's windy up here 10 months out of 12. Yes, Exactly. Mark, I wish I was there, really true, um, having a cup of tea or something like that. But great to talk to you, mate. Thanks, Ian. It's, uh, it, we've listened to you, mate, for 40-odd years. It's been great to actually talk to you. Good on you, mate. We'll catch up sometime. Where's home for you? 
uh, Brisbane. Brizzy. We all come from Brisbane. Right. Well, we might be up in Brisbane next month or two, and we'll yeah, look look us up. Come and see us. Thanks, Ian. Good on you, mate. Bye, mate. Bye. Yeah, g'day, Maka. How are you, mate? Good, thank you. Yeah, it's Fallon here. I'm calling from Corumba. Um, yeah, I heard the earlier caller describing the truck. He saw that light from Cloncurry. Um, mm. It was spectacular up here. I, uh, I'm anchored in the Northern River across from the Raptors Prawn Wharf, and I don't even know what made me poke my head up. I think it might have been a bit of a glow in the in the wheelhouse, and uh, it looked like something shot up in the sky. So, based on a bit of footage that I saw from. Uh, they got the Normanton Rugby League cluster on this weekend. It looked to be over that way. I don't know whether something landed here or not, but it was a truly spectacular and well-reported event. People from all, all the way down to Mackay and beyond have been commenting on it this morning. But, uh, yeah, this, it was a, a, a truly wonderful natural phenomenon. I'd yeah. like to have seen it, uh, Fallon. Lockie rang from Catamatite and... Uh milking cows down there that's in victoria so that's a long way down saw it seemed to be green i would have loved to have seen it but i didn't poke my head up out of the wheelhouse like you did um but um i was asleep at the time i assume but yeah i, I don't know fallon but um there you go very uh, exciting to see something like that in the sky it's something unusual like that isn't it i oh, mate, I'm, I'm a sucker for meteorology and what we've had up here this last wet season has been truly uh transformative uh, we just had the biggest, according to some of the bosses at Raptors, possibly the biggest banana prawn season in the history of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Uh, unbelievable. It reminded me of the early days of fishing boom towns. The boats were coming in absolutely laden. After three and four days fishing, there was uh, a, a mob of real good young Indigenous fellas came up from Cairns on short notice just to unload boats, sometimes 17 hours a day, public holidays, and the town got that real good party atmosphere going. It's uh, isn't it amazing, like a, it's like cleaning out a place when you get a big flood in some respects, isn't it? You know? Yeah, that's what they said down, on, remember the bloke, I don't know if you heard him, down on the Murray and said, you know, it's been terrible for this flood, but... In lots of ways, it's been a great clean out, especially for the river. You know, the river, uh, these clean, look, who knows how often they happen. It might be once every 50 or 100 years or 200 or 500. Who knows? We haven't been taking records for a long time. But no, I know that um, in lots of ways, there's bad and good in everything, Fallon, isn't there? And uh, yeah. So, and, and it's the big wet, you reckon, caused all the prawns. Oh, certainly. And the Barramundi fishermen, same story. Young fellas up here, yeah, a lot of people sort of knock our younger population for not wanting to work, but the young fellas up here, they, they stick with a very hard and dangerous trade in the Barramundi net fishery, and it's great to see those young men coming in with money in their pockets, a beautiful product, you know, wild-caught, sustainable product. You know, I know that the old fisherman, he, he cops a lot of grief, but we're managing probably the best fishery in the universe here and uh, I think it's like all all good things I think there comes a time when we all got to sort of sit down and say well if you got a healthy fishery you got a healthy town you got a healthy town that fellow growing some bullocks down the road he's pretty happy too because he's getting rain and we're not all taking too much I, th I think that um, we had a bit of a turning point here in this country where 
you took his spot that very intelligent man and spoke about feeding people white flour and such and such more. If if we live in the country that produces the best taco in the world, which we do, we should be eating the best taco in the world. Exactly. Now, that means, and if that means not exporting as much, it doesn't mean economically that you should suffer. See, I, I, I've been, I'm a bit like a mullet. I started down around Fraser <laughs> and I come all the way around to the Gulf. And I lived with a beautiful community of Mornington Island the last couple of years trying to work out how a place in paradise surrounded by the wealth of the world could fall into disarray. And unfortunately, that's 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 life. But it's only a, a microchism of Australia itself. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Fallon, just, tell, me, tell me about your, your you're a fisherman. You've got a boat there? Yeah, I'm on a boat here at the moment, mate, not doing anything. I'm trying to get a little Indigenous fishery started here to get a few of these young fellas out of that uh, crime and violence. See, it's a funny thing. They're skilled young men. They're hunters. Uh, uh, they're fishermen. And yet they're all ending up in towns all stealing cars or, or cans. And the, the the elders on the island that I deal with, the proper tribal people, they said, they said, we know these are wild young fellas. But sending them to jail in Townsville is sending them to crime university. Yeah. They want to they want to take them out on country, and 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 go back to a little bit of discipline, which is unfortunately frowned on these days. Well, every, when you got, everybody you know, need everybody needs that uh, discipline. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. Everybody, Fallon, as you know, everybody needs discipline, and and we all need to follow the rules a bit. That's what uh, Socrates said. You know, you need. You need to follow the rules. That, that little piece I, I just I just read. Um, you need you need discipline, and you need to you know a bit of order in your life, and uh, that's you know I'm, I think that's the that's the secret to it all. With with kids especially, because kids all kids will run amok if they're not. Uh, you know, it's like you know training a little dog. You know, you just got to do this and do that, and and everybody's better off. The dog's better off, and you're better off. So yeah, that's a yeah, but no brainer. Yeah, we put a lot of fear factor into children, and and that's ex- exacerbated in Aboriginal communities because they basically they grow up young, some have fetal alcohol problem and whatever, and that can make and then and by the way, that doesn't mean there's not plenty of white children born in Australia with the same or worse problem. Exactly, exactly. Fallon, listen, I've got to fly because I've got a million things to do this morning. So give me a look where you are. You're in your you're in the Norman River. You're on yeah, mate. You're on a boat. Uh, what's the boat called? The boat's called the Small Shark. The it was, we, we, we have a couple of financial backers that are trying to help us get going, and we don't want government money. We we just want to get these young fellows catching a little share of fish, a well, little, bit, little bit of that. You yeah. know. Well, Not, you, you keep in touch with us and let us know how you go, and if anyone wants to get in touch with you, I'll give you your number, mate. But um, uh, you got a bit of wind up there. Is, uh, we were talking to um, Mark. I, I just... I just saw a penguin fly past the window. Is that bloody cold here this morning? I reckon that wind's coming all the way from the South Pole. Come on, how cold is <laughs> Come on. You Wait, all... we, 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 we plummeted to somewhere near 11 degrees this morning, I reckon. Oh, yeah. Wow. All right. Yeah. Great to talk to you, Fallon. It's nice to hear your voice, mate. Um, I don't know what the meteor was, if it was a meteor, but uh, I know lots of people have seen it. All up. Hey, in... hey, it might have been Australia putting up an SOS flare, brother. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you, Fallon. See ya. 
Uh, good morning, Mako. It's Deborah Everson White here from the Alice Springs Beanie Festival. I know, I understand you mentioned us today. I did, I did. I've always meant to get to the the Beanie Festival, Deborah. It's on. That's the next month, is it? June. It is next month. It's the twenty third to the twenty sixth of June, and being run at the Araluen Centre in Alice Springs. Well, I've got a plastic bag here with a beanie in it, um, but I've got a couple. Only of... one. Yeah. Only one. Yeah. No, but you, you should see. You should see my beanie. Have a look at that. It's a. It's a ripper. And um, it, it's, but I've got a couple of beauties down there. And I, this came in from a lady, Maureen from Ascot Vale. She said, thanks for your wonderful stories, etc. I hope you enjoy wearing this beanie knitted, especially for you in alpaca, merino, silk, using the colour scheme known as Way Out Back. Spinning the, oh. yarn, spinning the yarn to knit this beanie seemed a perfect way to thank you for kindly autographing the box of the spinning chair I bought at the Bendigo Sheep and Wool Show. A few years back, I saw you and Kel coming to the show. Thank you for uh, to your very generous family, mind you, who must miss you so much when you are back. No, they don't. They don't miss me. They don't miss me at all. But look, Deborah, more people should go to the Beanie Festival. I've always meant to go to it. Is the weather cooling down for you in the in the it, Alice? It is. I'm actually. I don't actually live in Alice. I actually live in New South Wales. But I've been involved with the Beanie Festival for about fourteen years, oh. and this is our twenty seventh uh, Beanie Festival. So we've been going for a very long time. And lots of people come from all over, don't they? Oh, absolutely. So from a humble starting of 100 beanies 27 years ago, coming in for an Aboriginal community called Uendamu, we now have about 6,500 beanies coming from around the world. So, <laughs> That's ridiculous. So, <laughs> I know. So from humble beginnings, we've, we've created a uh, quite a phenomenon of beanie lovers, beanie wearers, beanie family, really. And my um, my one's got like it's almost like a fascinator. My beanie, it's got all these feathers. It's almost like a light horse beanie. It's got these feathers sticking out the top, and it's back in my in my office in, in like this one that I just I found out the other day because I was going through stuff as you do. Um, but they're a wonderful thing, a beanie, aren't they? And you can do all sorts of. Oh, you've probably seen more creative creativity than I have but ah yes well see I've just come back just around Easter time I have just come back from being in Tichicala where I helped um, the Aboriginal artists in Tichicala to develop beanies ready for the beanie festival and we used a technique called needle felting so it's a way for them to um, provide their art and their stories their jukapa and put it into a different medium into into a wearable art medium so um, in our, as part of our festival, we have a gallery space, which we, we take over the Araluan Gallery for about two weeks. And we have about 250 um, gallery beanies that are just exquisite. You could not believe what the sorts of things that go into our gallery space. And then in our Beanie Central, which is in uh, another part of Araluan Be- Centre called Be- Richardies. I love it. Beanie Central. Beanie Central. I'm yeah. ringing from Beanie Central. <laughs> Listen, on Sunday, on on the Sunday morning, I'll give you a call from Beanie Central. From Beanie okay. St- <laughs> <laughs> uh, David sounds fantastic. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out my beanie. It's in my office there, my little um, on my shelf there, and it's, and it's a wonderful beanie. And I can't even describe it. I need Robin here to describe. It. It's got it's got feathers and. Is it emu feathers? No. 
Um, it's no, it's like a Bersheba, yeah. But no, it's not emu feathers. Uh, I don't know oh. what it is. They might even be faux feathers, like the lady I saw the other day in, in a in a fur. And I thought, oh, great, she's wearing a fox fur. And I said, is that a fox? She said, no, it's a faux fur. A, fa- a faux no, fur. Nobody's game to wear a, a an animal fur anymore, even though foxes are predating and creating destruction out there in our native animals. You're not allowed to wear a fox fur, but um, uh, anyway. Um, but you can get fur beanies, I'm sure you can. Is that right? Deb, you're look, probably a, a beanie, a, a, look, the definition of a beanie is anything that's going to keep your head warm. And, yes, it is um, in uh, – I was talking to Joe Nixon, who um, who – I work with with the Beanie Festival mm. the other day, and she said it was minus one in Alice Springs. Oh. So um, it's it's starting to get colder. It's starting to get um, you know Beanie weather. We call it Beanie weather. Actually, the funny thing is, in June, a great time to have it is when the weather gets quite hot. We go no 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 no. We want cold weather. This is Beanie weather. Yeah. So. So we bring in Aboriginal ladies to come in to the festival and they sit and teach non-Aboriginal people to needle felt and we have a four-day festival starting on the 23rd through to the 26th with an opening night on the Friday night of um, on, on, as on the stage underneath the big beanie and we announce the beanie winners. So we have in our gallery, we have winning beanies and uh, we have entertainment and food on the Friday night. Sounds and then, fabulous. How do you – is there any room in the motels? I suppose there's not in town. Well, it's funny because lots of places book out, um, book out pretty quickly because when we announce the dates, um, uh, they, the hotels do book out. But there is still accommodation around. So, Macca, look, you have to come one day. Yeah, you have, have to, to come up. I have to come. I'm just thinking of my friend Michael Kelly, who was uh, one of our Australians of the Year uh, here at the uh, little program, Australians of the Year, Australians all over the year. And he um, he puts out a call for people to knit, knit beanies, especially over the last three years when people, uh, mariners weren't allowed to get off their boats, so they'd be uh, cold, and people were knitting oh. hundreds and hundreds and thousands of beanies for for seamen, you know, maritime uh, workers, and um, and they were and they'd bring them parcels of beanies, and they'd pass them around, and everybody on the ship was wearing a little beanie, and they were so so glad because uh, their little heads were getting cold. But um, yes, it's a wonderful yeah. thing, the beanie, isn't it? You know, it's, it is. We take yep. it for granted, Deborah. Um, you yep. you will ring me. I might even see you at, at Beanie Central. That's what I'd like well, to come, do. Why don't you come to Beanie, beanie Central? And just ask for Deb because everybody knows me. Everybody knows Deb. You're, I'll be wearing a beanie, but I'm not sure. I'll tell you the colour. I'll text you. Good on you, Deb. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Matt. See I'll you. talk soon. Bye. Bye. Her name's Lynn Silver, and she rang me on a a bit of an iffy phone. Um, good morning, Lynn Silver. How are you? I'm fine, Ian. Thanks. Uh, nice, to, nice to see you. I was just thinking uh, we're going to talk about uh, a few things, but how long have you been going to Borneo? Uh, since 1999. So that's 25 years, nearly. Yeah. About uh, 25 years. And have you seen a lot of changes in the place since uh, in those 25 years? Yeah, that's... huge expansion around the towns. Mm. And, of course, the Memorial Park where the prisoners of war were has been hugely upgraded by the Australian government. Uh-huh. So it's, um, it started off being quite raw and now it's absolutely spectacularly beautiful. Yeah. So what's the name of the town that you go to or the city? Oh, we go to Sandakan. Sandakan. And that's the that's the the Sandakan Death March, and that's that. When did you, when did you initially get the the bug about Sandakan? 
I got the bug back in 1993 when I was investigating the long-held belief that General MacArthur had refused to give us aeroplanes to rescue the prisoners of war and found out that was a story invented to cover up for our ineptitude in gathering intelligence on the ground to enable that rescue to take place. Mm -hmm. And consequently, the intelligence is so bad that the rescue was cancelled and by the time they found out that the intelligence was wrong, it was all too late. Mm -hmm. We we lost everybody. 2,500 people we lost. I mean, it's, it's the worst disaster in Australian um, uh, POW history, far worse than the death railway, which had uh, more deaths overall, slightly more. But, um, of course, we had a lot of survivors. We only had six that came out of Sundakan, and the British were wiped out to the last man. So, you know, it's a pretty awful story. And when I started on it, I started on it in a small way, and by the time I'd finished, I'd traced what happened to every single prisoner of war, British and Australian, and then it just took off. People rang me up. They're still ringing me up each week and say, do you know what happened to my grandfather? I mean, this is 80-something years well, later. And I'm thinking that. This is 80 years and, and you're still getting people who want to go and, and, and be part of that and, and sort of see where their uncle or whoever their mm. uh, grandfather was or whatever um, and they want to be part of that. Well, it's also a resolution of grief that the families have held on to since the Second World War when all they received was a telegram saying, died while prisoner of war in Borneo. That's all they got. And it wasn't until I did all this work and found out what happened to everybody that families were able to actually find out where they died because they were spread across the death march and at Sandakan and and at the destination point at Ranau. And um, it's it's huge resolution. The people that come with me are basically having, when we have the services there, the funeral they never had, the memorial service they never attended for their um, POWs. So it's... It's very um, emotional and it's very um, cathartic, cathartic mm. um, for these people. And I'm, as long as I can still keep walking, I'll be going. So it's 25 years this year. But I was thinking the other day, it's 37 years since I started to come on Australia all over. <laughs> I haven't been here that long. Yes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here listening to you and, and, and watching you. And you're, it's a bit like me with this program. I'm, yeah. Because I suppose I'm getting older and I, I think about, you know, should I be marching off into the distance? But this program's been my life, really, for a, a long time. Mm. And and I can see with you the way you talk about it. It's funny, isn't it, when something grabs hold of you like that and it, it just... I mean, everywhere I go, I just go... To, I, went, I went for a walk down the street down to the tab the other day, uh, yesterday, to back a horse in the um, in Morfittville. They had the Goodwood on. And um, and I'm walking down the street, and I always carry my recorder with me. And there's a bloke playing a trombone, and I can't go past a bloke playing a trombone. So, so I did a little story everywhere I go. And you're the same. I mean, you you just it just in, envelops your life, doesn't it? I yeah. mean, and it, you just live and live and breathe it all the time. I can tell because I've talked to you over a year about all. And you just get obsessed with something, and away you go. I think your, your poor dear husband must just. You know, it's like the late. It's like the late. Remember, Kel, the lady said, uh, and I was talking to these two, and they travelled around, and I said, and I talked to him, and he said, "Oh, we go here, and we go there," and, and I said, uh, "What about you, um, Narelle? She said, "Oh, I just follow the bed," meaning the which <laughs> which was the the mobile home, <laughs> and your dear husband must be the same. Um, you just <laughs> you're just along for the ride because you somebody like you, you just get obsessed, and away you go, don't you? Yes, well, I get obsessed about all the books I write, mm. but this one in particular, because it's ongoing, I didn't realise it would be quite as ongoing as it is. Mm. 
and we don't advertise. I mean, I take these people on a totally non-commercial basis over to Borneo twice a year at least, once for Anzac Day and then again to, to trek along part of the Death March track. And what's Isn't that like? Hard. Mm. Not not it's not, uh, not, not onerously hard. Not Kokoda hard. Well, parts are, but it's really? a, there's a lot of flat stuff in between. But mm. it's the heat that gets most people. It's you know you're in the tropics, mm. so um, that's in August. We've got um, 16 people who are willing to come and do that. Um, so I don't. I just go along as the storyteller now. I don't walk anymore. And Neil, my husband, did about oh I don't know more than 50 treks. But he's stopped now. His age is catching up with us. So he comes along and um, he, he doesn't, he, he's not just the handbag. He, he, has, he has, has big... <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. No, I just... no, 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 but he, just, he has great input into the, uh, the, what we do. Yeah. And, um, but my role is essentially telling the story and um, making sure everybody understands the meaning of where they go. For instance, with the trekking groups, I give them all a prisoner of war to follow. A complete outline, photograph and everything. And when we get to the spot where their prisoner died, they have to tell the group the story. Uh-huh. And that's much harder than it sounds. I'll bet much, it is. Much, much harder. It's very inclusive, but very inclusive. I went to Sydney Tech High a couple of months ago where they unveiled a board for the Vietnam War and they keep doing it for their... There's a bloke there who who, um, <clears throat> who is very interested in that. and and um, But the students were all given the job to look at the um, the Vietnam war veterans who who went to that school and so each of the students had a and so they all told their story about the different soldiers so mm. it's the way of in, involving everybody in it isn't it it's also a way of putting a human face when you have large numbers i mean when you're talking about 1787 australians mm. 800 of whom died on the track it's just like a statistic but when you actually relate to somebody, then it's completely different. And, and that's what I hope to do with the tours and tricks that we do, is to make people realise that they were, these were ordinary, average Aussies who volunteered. This is the All Over News. I'm talking to Lynn Silver, who's written books about all sorts of things. Uh, in front of me is a book called At War With My Father, Fred Howe, Prisoner of War. You better tell us about uh, this, Lynette Ramsey Silver. <laughs> Um, what's at war with my father? That sounds like me, actually, in growing up. But anyway. Well, it's not my father. It's the father of a lady called Di Elliott, who spent 20 years as my closest friend and confidant and co-researcher. And uh, she had a very traumatic childhood due to her father's uh, war service. Um, he had, so far, the worst war I've ever come across from somebody in battle and somebody as a prisoner of war. Mm. Horrendous. So, you know, survived um, Singapore and Malaya where only a handful of people got out of a battle situation. So uh, she just thought that he was a crunky old bugger, she used to say, and all fathers were like that. And it wasn't until after he died, he died quite young, um, 20 years later, that she decided to see what he'd been doing. And this story is the story of Fred Howe and of Di Elliott's journey to reconcile with her father. And when you start off reading the prologue at the beginning and uh, you read what happened to her as a child, you think, she's never going to forgive him, not in a million years. But when you get to the end, you understand why she does. Mm. So it's a, a different sort of war book. It's a, a war book that's um, got great detail if you're you know, interested in um, the fighting in Malaya and Singapore. And it is a POW experience on the railway from Burma 
uh, to the very end of the war. Fred Howe went up with the first group into Burma in uh, May of 1942 and he didn't come out of the railway until after the war finished. So he's there at the end building defences for the Japanese tunnels into hills that were collapsing. It was horrendous time and it's a miracle he even survived that. So it's a story of survival for him and a story of Di Elliott's journey. Now the reason why I'm doing this is that um, she was partway into recording her own thoughts and also uh, transcribing 27 separate accounts her father had left of himself in action and also as a POW when she was diagnosed with incurable brain tumour. And so uh, knowing she was going to die, she made me promise her two things. She said, Linny, I need you to promise me two things. So what was it? One was to conduct a funeral, which I did. Hmm. And the second was, you're going to have to finish Dad's story for me. So I did. And that's what this book is about, and it's probably one of the most interesting war stories I've ever written because you go on her and journey. And you've written some rivers, haven't you? Well, some of, yes, I suppose they're all different in their own way. Most of them are investigative type history. I mean, this wasn't investigative. This is a different sort of story. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you think of Australia's war experience going back to the Boer War. I think there's something on today. I was going to mention that um, there's something on it about uh, today or is it next weekend about the Boer War. But it's interesting to think about our experience in the war and all the people that were captured, um, you know, certainly in the, even in the First World War, but certainly the Second World mm. War and in Vietnam and all those sort of places and the things and our experience and what it's done to the, the national psyche, I suppose, in terms of the mental health issues that, that all are. We're only talking about that now and in the last 10 or whatever is we just blithely ignored it, didn't we? And, mm. and yet it's it's been this. Everyone's been living with demons, and nobody's getting any counselling. And and as you say, you you wonder why your father's a not my father, but people are cranky old man or whatever. And and it's partly because of war experience and 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 being a prisoner of war even worse. I remember I spoke to um, what was his name, Kel? Uh, Fred, um, uh, the um, you know, he uh, running to live or living to run. He wrote we wrote that little book. And he'd been in he'd been in Changi um, mm. or one of those camps, and he said, "George, that's right, George. Why did I say Fred? George Daldry, who was a great trainer of football teams, yep. and and um, and he survived. He was only very young, I think, when he went to war, probably eighteen or something like that. Um, and he said the ones that survived were the ones that could deal with it in their head, and and the others didn't survive. But." Um, uh, I suppose something extra. He was always fit and exercising and things like that. It's very, I mean, the mental health thing is just something, and you'd know all about it because, um, as you say in this book, living with demons is the is the whole thing that people have done, and and you wonder why people are crazy. Look at Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq and all those sort of things, and it's just ongoing, mm. and it's out there in in spades, isn't it? Yeah, and you, when you read the book, you wonder how Fred Howe actually survived not only physically because it was tremendously difficult, but also how he actually survived mentally. Mm. And, uh, I mean, obviously he didn't. He buried it away and uh, had terrible repercussions. But um, this was a... Yeah, this is a story of, of yeah, as I said, survival. But um, I always like furfies. You know I like furfies mm. <laughs> and busting them. And, uh, you know, everybody says there's a life for every sleeper on no, the railway. You hear oh, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. A life for every sleeper. Well, I haven't heard that. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's quite often said, you know, we had a life for every sleeper. Well, actually, we didn't. If you count in the poor Asians that died, plus the POWs, it's about 
112,000, and there's 600,000 sleepers. But if you add in all the other little loops and the side tracks, it ends up being, if you take an allied life for every sleeper, well, let's reverse it. If you take a sleeper for every allied life, the sleepers will be 33 metres apart. <laughs> so it's not a life for every sleeper, although it's a lot of people. You know, 12,000 of um, allies and 100,000 of the local people that were brought in as slaves. The book's called At War With My Father, Fred Howe, Prisoner of War. This has been the All Over News. G'day there, Macca. This is Martin. I'm in uh, Los Angeles. G'day, Martin. How are you? What's happening? I'm well, thanks. Well, my ears really perked up at the beginning of the show when you play the gal from Texas with Eddie Bears on it playing drums. Oh, yeah. Because I just, yeah, I was just in Nashville uh, at the Grand Ole Opry, which is a, actually like a really long standing, it's been a radio show since like 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they have a live show and Eddie Bears was playing drums. Oh really? He's he's well. I just heard him on that song. Um, I've heard, you know been playing that song forever. It's just a great drum track. And then I started when I heard that. I don't know about ten years ago. And then I started looking on and various albums to see if Eddie Bass was was playing um, drums. And uh, so I go looking for him now. And funnily enough, we've got a guitar player here in Australia called Rod McCormack. He's a lovely, wonderful uh-huh. guitar player, and. Uh, and I was speaking to him about, I forget what it was about, about uh, six months ago. And Rod's been yeah. over in Los Angeles and he's, he travels to America. He's just a lovely player, plays banjo and mando and guitar and sings. <laughs> and, but, um, and I mentioned it. He said, oh, and I know it. He, he'd been over in in uh, LA, I think, talking to, and he knows uh, Eddie Byers. And tell me your story, Martin. Well, uh, I was going to the Grand Ole Opry because my parents lived there and my dad used to play with Eddie Bears on a bunch of tracks and stuff. Um, but I make costumes and uh, one of my, the groups that I made costumes for was playing at the uh, Grand Ole Opry. Um, but I make costumes for America's Got Talent. And also one of the gals from America's Got Talent is from Australia. And uh, she got runner up here in the U.S. And uh, she lives in Ballarat, though. And uh, her name is Christy Sellers. And she has a stellar performance that she does. It's just a one-gal show where she does all the backgrounds. And I I made her costumes, but um, she kind of creates her own character in a video game that she goes up and down these poles and interacts with the LED screens that have all these different environments crashing around in the background. It's a really incredible uh, performance that she does. It's, that sounds very difficult to understand, actually, uh, Martin. So, Martin, you live <laughs> – so tell me, you live in L.A.? I do, yeah. And you, li- <clears throat> you listen to the program? Well, I do, yes. I listen to the program because I was uh, living in Lake Tyres, in 2019, 2018, mm-hmm. for about a year, and spent a lot of time uh, over there with. Um, they have a big arts community called Float that's over there in the East Gippsland, mm-hmm. and uh, I they had some reporters out from the radio a couple times, and so yeah, I got involved with the radio, and I love listening to it, and I 
keep doing that. So, <laughs> well, that's nice to know. Nice. I wonder how many people in Los Angeles listen to the uh, the the program. Uh, <laughs> I uh, tell everybody about it, so <laughs> there might be a few. <laughs> well, isn't that funny, Eddie? Buys. Do you know? <clears throat> he's he sounds. He's a lovely drummer, um, and he does. Oh things, yeah, does things completely different. He's he'd be getting on now, wouldn't he? Uh, yeah, he's probably about as old as my dad, so probably like early 60s, mid-60s. Yeah, but, but a lovely but player. He's still up there. Yeah, and does a lot of sessions. All, all and, night. Yeah. yeah. And what? who was playing at the Grand Ole Opry? Uh, actually, why the Grand Ole Opry is really a cool venue is because it's like a variety show. So the band that I went to hear was Drake Milligan, and he's from Texas. He's probably mid-twenties um but a really good classic sound and they have a fiddle player too and but they get about two songs maybe three songs and then the next group comes on and the next group they were a group of probably six men in their 80s probably 70s and 80s and they were so good it was a bluegrass band and they were just smoking fast playing so well and um and then after that they were off and then Square dancers came on and they have a square dance break and do some square dancing up there. And then other groups come on. Like there's this black country singer group of all uh, three girls and uh, they play there and it's just a really, they get about three songs and then the next group comes on. Wow. Wow. And the, and the, place, the place is packed still. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Back to the guilds. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, tell and me it's every week for going over a hundred years. <laughs> yes, I know uh, that sounds f- fabulous. It's really, you know, it's really confronting when you see groups uh, and of people who can play so well and they're playing all the time and they're just so skilled and very good at what they do. They just do it all the time and it's it's really confronting. Yeah. It's confronting if you play or whatever and you think, God, I'll never play like that. They, it's, but it's wonderful to see, isn't it? Wonderful to see banjo players it and totally is. fiddle players. Yeah. Martin, listen, I haven't been to Los Angeles for years. Um, yeah. How's things? Uh, how's Los Angeles? Is it, I mean, it's such a spread out place, the valley and Van Nuys, and yeah, it's just everywhere. But yeah, what's it's a good place? What, a good place to live still. I really enjoy it. Uh, you're right; it is really spread out, and there's a lot. A lot of different neighborhoods and stuff. So what I've kind of gathered is it's easier if you just, I just kind of stay put in one small neighborhood instead of trying to see the whole thing and just kind of live my life like that. Uh, like today I'm just at home making some sauerkraut and listen to you guys. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice because there's a bunch of different types of people and all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, the beach is nice, but I mean, it's nothing like, the beach out in uh, East Gippsland, <laughs> tell you that much. No, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's warming up here. So, but I live right next to a really big park, and I go out and pick mustard greens in the morning and eat those. So there's still a bunch of green out here. What's what do you pick? Mustard greens. Yeah, the mustard greens are in full like full bloom right now. The whole park is just full of them. Uh, it's like a forest of what a, what uh, a, like mustard flowers? What are mustard greens? Well, mustard greens, it's I mean they're spicy. It's like a spicy green. 
not as big and leafy as collard greens, but smaller leaves about the size of your hand. And uh, it grows. It looks like just a weed. looks like there's just weeds everywhere. But if you pick the leaves off, I just chop them up and then throw them in the skillet with some coconut oil for about a couple minutes. And um, they cook down just like spinach would. So there. All right. Sounds nice, I think. (laughs) Uh, They're good. (laughs) Martin, whereabouts do you live in L.A.? Uh, There's a neighborhood called Echo Park, which is where I live. And it's right between downtown and Hollywood. It's like uh, probably a lot of the houses were built between the 20s and the 50s or 60s. So I live in a little bungalow that's um, next to Echo Park Lake, which is a little lake over there. And uh, it's quite hilly and green right now, luckily. Yeah, lots of of rain. Lots of mustard greens. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And a lot of mustard greens. (laughs) <laughs> Martin, great to talk to you. Nice to know you're listening in LA. Thanks, mate. Nice to talk to you. You too. Good morning, Macca. It's Lisa from Margaret River. Oh, hi, Lisa. How are you going? Very well, thank you. That's just the way. Calling in. Yeah, just calling in to um, yeah, tell you a bit about myself and, and what I do. I, um, I'm a heavy diesel mechanic up in the Pilbara and I um, work on the SD70 locomotives up there. So... Very, very interesting career, and yeah. How long have you been up there, Lise? Where do you come from? Um, I come from. I'm, I'm from Margaret River, so I um, commute up there to work, and um, I've been, I've been working up there for about twelve, thirteen years now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. and and busy, I'll bet. Um, yeah, when we're at work, we um, need our locomotives. Um, work, yeah, um, operating around the clock, and mm. they they. Um, Part the iron ore from you know in, inland the mines um, to the beautiful port of Port Headland. Lots of young girls yeah. listening here this morning, Lise. You'd uh, um, advise them to take a, a, a mechanics course and, and and follow your dreams. Um, yeah, yes, yes, and no. It's, it's very hard work, and you know you're away from home for a long time. But I've learnt so much and um, met some very very colourful people along the way, and. Yeah, it's been it's been a, a very bright, a very interesting career. Anyway, so it's, you fl- um, you fly in, fly out, do you, or what? What's yes, your story? Yes, I do. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, I fly in, fly out. I do two weeks on and two weeks off, and yeah, my two weeks off. I'm like I said, down in beautiful Margaret River. I'm out in the backyard at the moment, um, and our bees are just starting to come out and try and collect some uh, nectar and pollen. And yeah, um, it's it's just it's a lovely lifestyle. Even though we work hard up there, we get you know time to enjoy our lives when we're off. And you go from the heat to the cold, really, don't you? Um, Absolutely, it's really frost down here. Um, yeah, all the um, the autumn colours are coming out, especially in the vineyard. Yeah, which is a, a stunning time of year. I did a wine tour yesterday. That was quite fun too in my hometown. So. Very, very well worth the trip. <laughs> have you have you got your own winery or, or own no, vineyard no, or something? Wine. No, no, I did a wine tour yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah, just from home, just to check out some some more local wineries. And yeah, I'd like to say thank you for your program too. It keeps my mother and my auntie and I connected. They're over on the east coast in the Blue Mountains in the foothills of the Blue Mountains. 
So, um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing every Sunday morning listening to your program and we're all connected via so, you. So thank you, Lisa. Were you from – is that where you're from originally? And Originally, yes. Yes, I was from Sydney. And, um, I, yeah, I, I wasn't meant for the city life, so I, le- I left very early. And I also went up to the top end and worked in that magnificent fishery, the northern prawn fishery. Mm-hmm. For seven years I was up there and we had some fantastic seasons as well. And – uh, it is. It's like you said, or someone said this morning. Everyone should should get up there and experience that. It and and it does need to be protected. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'll mm. say. And and apparently, I mean, when you get a call like I got from Fallon, and he said this is the biggest banana prawn season he's ever seen, and yes. fish, fishermen are saying the same thing about Barramundi. And, yep. and you know, and he he went on to talk about what a wonderful, bountiful. Bountiful is a great word to describe Australia and yeah. and what our farmers yep. give us, um, and, yep. and what our waters give us. Beautiful. Yep, it is. It is absolutely beautiful. But yes, that that um, there's two seasons a year up there: the banana prawn season, which started at the beginning of April, and then the tiger prawn season, which usually kicks off around the start of August. And um, yeah, they do a lot of work. They've minimised the boats. They've put in more closures and. Um, that's what's making it today, like you know, one of the best fisheries in the world. Yeah, least I'll see you in Margaret River sometime, but you probably won't be there. You'll be up up the. <laughs> I might be here. I hope we do, Maka. Thanks very much for your program and having me on. Good see on you. Later. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Good morning, Mako. My name's Wayne in South Korea. G'day, Wayne. Uh, how are you? What are you doing in hey, South you. Korea? Where you in Seoul or somewhere? Are you? Yeah, yeah, we live in Seoul. We've lived here for three and a half years, so we had the whole journey of COVID here and we couldn't return back to Australia. So we've uh, been listening to you for three years, so I thought I'd uh, give you a call. I'm just about to retire and return home in a couple of, well, six weeks. So uh, I just wanted to thank you for keeping us connected to our beautiful country back home. Wayne, and, why do... Yeah, well, Sorry, why does one live in South Korea? So I'll tell us your story. Okay. Uh, I've been working for a car company for 41 years as of July this year. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was given the opportunity to come and share some of my knowledge with the industry over here uh, back three and a half years ago. So I did that. I look after safety uh, in this part of the world for uh, the car company, and we have been trying to drive and introduce some of the learnings we've had for Australia from the point of view of keep, keeping people uh, safe and well while they're working in a pretty tough environment. So that's the journey, and uh, this is about to come to a conclusion with the retirement in the uh, end of July. So tell me your story. So you were working where? in With Holden or Ford or someone in Australia, and, and then you went to South Korea when they finished up here or something like that? Is that... What's happened? Yeah, that's correct, Maka. Well, I, I was working for, I've been, I was in Holden, and uh, because of the amount of time and experience I've had there, uh, the company gave me the opportunity to come here with my wife and spend the last part of my career here to share what we'd built and learnt uh, in the Holden organisation with uh, this part of the world. Yeah, and uh, what's it like? What was the language barrier like going to Seoul? Uh, it's quite amazing how many of the young people can actually speak English. Uh, I've got an immediate team of about 30 people and 
I'd say 60% of them can speak some English. So they've done an amazing job of uh, teaching this generation English. And it's been quite easy, actually. There's been a little bit of learning, but uh, no, it's been a really interesting journey. I'll bet it has. And what's it like living in South Korea? You get cold there, don't you? And very cold. Yeah, the the winter's cold and the summers are quite warm and humid. So we're just moving into the summer season now. Mm. So it's starting to get temperatures of 26, 27 degrees, but the humidity is quite high. And did you have, have you got children there with you? Have they been to schools in Korea or? No, all of our children have grown up and have children of their own. So they're all back in Australia. So that's been a big gap for us, obviously, not to have the immediate connection with the family. We've got a lot of grandchildren as well. So we're looking forward to coming home and enjoying the next chapter of our, our life and getting a caravan and heading around Australia to some of these amazing places I've been hearing about on your program for the last three and a half years. <laughs> How many car manufacturers are there in Korea? Are there lots? Or what, and what are they? What, uh, I, I wouldn't know. What? There's four. There's four car or two, two local companies, Kia and Hyundai. Uh, Renault is a third one that's uh, uh, not originated from Korea, but working in Korea, and then and there's ours, Gem. Gems. So the so the the French make their cars in Korea or some cars, do they? Yeah, they do some. Yeah, you know, like most most of them are imported, but they've got a joint venture with a car company here. <sighs> All right, Wayne. Well, nice to talk to you. Um, and thanks for your call from. From Seoul, I suppose many many expats, so many Australians live in in Seoul. Have you got a little uh, company of people that you can go and have barbies with and all that sort of stuff? Or yeah, there's there's some, uh, but there's many more Brazilians and Americans. Uh, so connecting with people has been quite easy. Uh, not that there's no problem in that space at all. It's been a great experience and a great journey. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, the urge to get that van and hit the road in Australia is calling for sure. <laughs> well, this is the time to do it. In uh, in the winter months, it's beautiful. It's a dry season. You can head north and you can see the lakes of and fingers of green all around the place, mate. No, looking forward to it. And thank you for the last three and a half years of keeping us connected to our home country. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Wayne. Nice to talk to you, mate. Good luck. Bye. G'day, Macca. This is Ruby Menkins. I'm from Armadale, New South Wales. G'day, Ruby. How old are you? I am 12 years old. There you go. Uh, and what's happening? Um, not much. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time because I've been listening to Sunday with Macca since I was two years old with my dad. No, we you make have pancakes not. You have not, have every you? Every Sunday morning. R- yeah, we have been making pancakes every Sunday morning since I was two years old. Listening to Sunday with Macca. Well, um, I think I think it. Well, I'd like to do that actually. I'd like to be having pancakes on Sunday morning, but we get very slim pickings here, mate. Um, I'm drinking, <laughs> I've been drinking water all morning. But uh, what sort of what do you have on your pancakes? Um, I I like to have lemon sugar and some that's, lemon and sugar and sometimes maple syrup. That's the lemon and sugar is just the best. Um, it's very old fashioned, uh, but, um, so your granddad's obviously, uh, from that era. Um, yeah, you put lots of lemon on it and then lots of sugar and then you roll it up and it's just the best Ruby. Yeah. We make crepes. We don't make proper cream. 
um, what do you call it, pancakes. Oh, they're, they're, well, that's very cultured. That's very French, actually. That's very French. Yeah. Um, and that's they're very nice, they're, but they're beautiful things. So, um, so tell me about yourself, Rube. What, uh, what, um, what floats your boat well, apart from pancakes? Uh, crepes, sorry. Well, um, we live in Armadale, New South Wales, and we farm um, lots of wagyus and Angus cows. And yeah, we yeah. And 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 you help around the farm, do you? Yeah, a lot. Um, I go to school in Armadale as well, a big school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I go to the Armadale school. It's a quite a big school. Yeah. Now, listen. Do you ever do you have pancakes or crepes on any other days? Because I can't come on Sundays, but I could come on another day. I... <laughs> no, we only ever do it on Sunday. Oh, you wouldn't make an exception. Ask Granddad if he'd make an exception. If I let you know, if I ring you on approach or something, um, like the cabs do, if I ring you on approach, yeah. I could say, look, it's uh, Tuesday. Uh, any chance of any pancakes? Maybe after school or something, Ruby? Yeah, that would work. <laughs> yeah, that would work. Exactly. All right. Mm-hmm. Listen, I've got to fly, darling, but um, nice to talk okay. to you. Say good to uh, Is it Dad or Granddad you make the pancakes with? Dad. Dad. Sometimes that comes. Right. What's Dad's name? Tony Mankins. Tony. All right. Good on you. Say good day to Tony and Granddad. And, uh, yeah, pancakes are coming. I'll bring the lemons. <laughs> okay. Bye, Macca. See ya. Bye. Matt Onslow from Walker, Macca. Oh, good day, Matt. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, good. And um, what I'm ringing about, I'm... I'm the chairman of a group in New England called Responsible Energy Development for New England. Mm. And um, speaking of the environment minister, and look, our group was formed because of the the massive amount of renewable energy projects that are being thrust upon landholders in the New England renewable energy zone. And it's probably, and I, I know some of your listeners it's probably the most divisive thing that's happened uh, in my time in this town. And we've got members from Gaira, Ben Lomond, Bendemere, down around Tamworth, all, all that southern New England area. And just to give you a bit of an idea what's going on, within a 50-kilometre radius of Urala, we've got six to 800 wind towers planned and 5.7 million solar panels. Um with very little consultation to, to the local communities. And it's, it's our job, we see, is to try and make people aware and give them a bit of support because this is becoming a serious issue in, the, in a lot of the small towns right across New South Wales. You know, you can take in Cooler, Cassilis, down south with the Hume Link try, problems down there. Try Batlow, try uh, Ballarat. Try all over the yes. joint, mate. We've had we've had calls about uh, this, and see, most of us. I live in the city. Uh, Lenny Silver, who's here with us, she's a city dweller. She sometimes goes to Borneo, but <laughs> but we don't see any of this. Uh, these uh, what I think Dick Smith, when he called us once, called industrial wind farms. Um, we wouldn't like to live near those, and and I suppose you've got you've got uh, as you as you. You said you've probably got neighbour against neighbour because one neighbour says, yes, you can come across here, and the next neighbour says, 
I mean, I just, I just can't fathom what sort of a divisive. And we seem to have everything. Nobody wants to bring anyone together. We're trying to divide the place, and it's this headlong rush, a headlong rush into renewables, and nothing will ever be a hundred percent renewable, as Mr. Smith says. But there's this head without yeah. any thought about it. So, and 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 people who live outside the cities are bearing the brunt of all of this, of all the renewables. What's your group called? The Responsible Energy and Development Group. Energy for New England. Red for E&E. Yeah. Well, Matthew, um, uh, quickly, we've got a, I've got another minute for you, but um, it, uh, I suppose that's, uh, and that's not nice. In Normally in a country town, everybody's uh, looking at the same, you know, got the same out view, a purview of life, haven't they? But not now. No, it's probably it's very positive. Uh, Energy Co really don't want to know about it. Um, you know, they just come up, tick the box, tick the box. We're going to do it. That's what the government wants. But it is, it's making life unpleasant for quite a lot of people. And you know, we all know this stuff doesn't work anyway. So it really, it really is time for people to get together and ask questions of the government to come up here, have a look at what you're doing, and let's put a bit more thought into this. Mm, well, see, we've rushed headlong into it, and so this is the, this is the way it is. And then there's the whole there's the nuclear thing, and people say, well, look, we should, be having nuclear, we should be having nuclear pods and stuff, but it's a discussion which should be taking place, should have been taking place years ago, but hasn't been now. Um, yeah. um, Matthew, I've got to fly, but nice to talk to you, and good luck. Um, um, we'll hear more about this. As I said, it's from Ballarat to Batlow to... To Urella and places in between. Thanks, yeah. thanks, Matthew. Thanks for your call. Yeah. Bye. You. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.